You are listening to the Ion Packs conversation with Caroline Polachek. This is from back in March. We're unlocking it now. It was previously Patreon only. So if you want to hear more podcasts like this, go to patreon.com slash the Ion Pack. You already know. Patreon. Grain. We are a creative. We get it. Doritos bags look mad different. Steven Sonnenberg's song is saying Beautiful fellas. Give me brackets. He's a, a pig piece of shit. Never make a movie and make out with girls. I was obsessed with trash. M. Night Shyamalan. The movie's trash, you know? If, like, the sound is off in a the theater, I, I go mentally ill. Wes Anderson sucks. Wes Anderson. I don't make movies, I make films. I'm my fucking line producer, Trust Fund, baby. Experimental film. James Gray sucks. Let the creative people talk to the money people. What, no Q&A? I'm an artist, one of the first great artists of the 21st century. You don't see a film and say, Joe Schmo did the fucking food. Let me go see all his movies he did the food in. This is a film. Spike Jones sucks bad. Rub Vaseline on the lens. There's a whole group of guys who pretend to be making special films. Excited to have Caroline Polachek on the pod today. Caroline Elizabeth Polachek, CEP. Here she is. Here she is. Let's get this queen in here. Let's get this queen in here. Hey, Caroline. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, you can. can us. Amazing. Um, give me one sec. I'm just gonna set up my recording in parallel. How are you guys? Good. How are you? We are great. I'm good. I'm good. Um, I hope I'm not too like. I just realized I shouldn't have scheduled a podcast sesh right after like planning to spend an entire day in the studio by myself, which is to say like a nonverbal day. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. Like wrecked. <laughs> no, 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 not wrecked at all. It's more just like you know when you're working on music, you go into this very like nonverbal headspace. Yes. And then to flip it kind of, um, uh, yeah, it's a funny thing to do. But you got cerebral today. Yeah, or like, yeah, non, non-word non mode. Okay, cool. Opening up my recording. But you might also be, you know, more tapped into your higher self. Exactly. And maybe even yours as well, so. Yeah, exactly. We're all we could up there silent, on the... We could do like a silent... <laughs> I'm kind of into that, just like... A non-verbal communication pod. pod. Yeah, see if we can... See if we can still kind of get the vibe out to the listeners and they'll they'll see what we wanted to say. Or we'll just um, be like, mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I mean, mm. experimental podcast. That's you know, that's coming up. That's ne- that's going to be the next genre. Avant pod. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the avant pod. <laughs> yeah, that's coming. There's a real market for that. I think it's our little 
market, maybe. I think they, <laughs> I think this, I think we know the people that would appreciate that. Avant pause. Um, oh, actually, maybe that's the name of the episode. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here for it. Welcome, Caroline Polchuk to the Ion Pod. Thanks so much. Caroline, um, you're out in the UK, right? Yeah, um, I kind of moved to London by accident. Um, I was here on tour a year ago and got COVID. And rather than going back to the US, well, obviously I couldn't travel while sick and quarantining, so I just um, stayed put here. And then after kind of hanging tight for a month or so here, I realized I didn't really want to go back. Um, so I had a friend do the angelic task of moving out of my apartment for me. Wow. And I just stayed in stayed in London. I mean, it wasn't uncompensated. It was compensated, oh, okay. but... <laughs> I was about to be like, that's a good friend. Yeah. I mean, also a good friend, but... Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've just stayed here ever since. And with, I, you're clearly uh, vibing with it. Yeah, I love it. Um, I don't know. It's It's kind of a you can kind of get into this kind of like plague, like more antiquity plague mindset being here, which makes the whole thing a bit more romantic. Yeah. Yeah. Like they've been through yeah. it before here. Right. right. Exactly. They have, yeah. A lot of history. Can you, yeah. I, I mean, I see you as like sort of a, a New York person. Can you distill maybe like what you think the difference between, or like the feeling of New York versus London or the UK? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I was in New York for about 15 years. So I guess that qualifies me as like a oh, yeah. spiritually a New Yorker, but it's interesting. I feel like London has more of a relationship with like futurism and technology. Um, and at the same time, this kind of more romantic relationship with history and, um, and like classicism and even like, you know, being literate and well-read and um, being an intellectual, I feel like that's kind of more the headspace here, whereas New York kind of feels more like irony laden and and interfacing with the more recent past um right. yeah and like self-hatred that's a big part of being a new yorker as well <laughs> that i feel like there's if they have a different a different different version of self-hatred here right yeah i mean i feel like new york probably romanticizes its own recent history more than probably anywhere else yeah full-time well i guess la in a different way but. yeah in a different way yeah, LA's got that kind of like mid-century funk. Right. Whereas, yeah, um, that's true. They're, they're stuck back there. Yeah. And you were in LA for a bit too, right? Yeah, last year. Um, I just tried it on for size, but then COVID hit and derailed all plans. And how do you like it? I mean, as a musician, it's like an absolute um, like playpen in terms of what you can do. Because at least at the time, I guess it's about two years ago, there's so much space Um but just in terms of like warehouses and places you can shoot. Um, and, and especially, f you know, at the time I was building, building really ambitious sets for music videos and really getting into this idea of kind of these theatrical environments that you can build that I never would have been able to afford to do in New York. So that was really liberating. But I also felt really tapped into this kind of like dusty history of that kind of fantasy building in L.A. as well, like going into these old prop houses and these old costume houses, you know, where there's like leotards with snail trail on them from someone who would have rented, rented them from like 30 years ago. Um, there, I don't know. There's just this, like, you feel quite in touch with all these people who went to LA for the purpose of building fantasy. And it's like quite beautiful. Yeah. Um, even while being a bit like kind of tragic and um, in the kind of paradigm shifts, but yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I, and I, I definitely feel like the, music scene in LA is, is kind of 
maybe more healthy. I feel like a lot of people, that's their first move um, after getting any kind of success in New York. It's a ship out west. Fully, except, you know, I really got the impression there isn't a scene in L.A. It's just one giant, like, monoculture silo. It kind of reminded me of being in high school where, like, everyone's eating in the same cafeteria and looking over at each other's tables yeah, a bit. right. Um, and that the second someone has, like, one interesting new idea, it will spread like a wildfire through everyone's sessions, you know? Totally. Um, really fast and meaninglessly. Whereas at least, you know, New York, while it's, like, I don't know, maybe kind of slower moving and more, like, neighborhoody of a music scene, um, I think there's some kind of, like, vestige of authenticity or something yeah i think in new york people act like they don't care what you're doing but they might care way more where it seems like la is can be very appealing because it seems like people care about what you're doing but the, the kind of la move is to just act like you care yeah totally well my experience of like in in, in film as well with new york versus la is that i feel like la people still kind of look toward New York is like a place where like maybe like the new interesting ideas are popping out from and then they're capitalized on out west. It's like a varsity junior mm. varsity kind of uh, dynamic where it, I still feel as if like L.A. people are looking like what's coming out of New York and like when when can we get them to come out here? Yeah, totally. What yeah, are the I, like what are the kind of like, I don't know, feelings and like conversations happening in New York right now around like the immediate future of film. Um, Given that we're so, coming out of this time when there like has been nothing made. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting question. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the reason I love New York the most is because it's always been like my favorite place to watch movies, like the, the exhibition spaces and curation of whatever. It has always been like just, there's, there's such an abundance of amazing things playing every day. Um, and now obviously coming out of a time where, you know, movie theaters are closed and people have not been able to, get together to make things or if they do they're doing it you know maybe slightly illegally or outside of the rule book or something like that um oh illegally that's exciting <laughs> yeah i mean i was actually surprised that there maybe were there wasn't more sort of like illegal screening or production stuff happening like it kind of almost felt like you know everybody was being safe which is which is fine. I'm just sort of kind of surprised that maybe there wasn't some sort of like underground, like rebellious, like we're going to make a movie, we're going to go show it, um, which, uh, which is interesting. I don't, in terms of like the future of it, um, I mean, if you, it depends on who you talk to. Like if you talk to someone who's a little bit older, they're all focused on, you know, streaming services. And, but if you talk to the kids, they're like, we want to open our own movie theater. So I, I generally try to listen to the kids. Big time. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and for music in New York too, I really think, well, I think there's going to be a live music kind of resurgence, um, something like that in New York. I think the same is going to go for kind of any uh, medium. I think there's going to be, uh, you know, more collaboration and more screenings and more live music. Yeah, in both in both departments, people are yearning for like physical experiences again. Despite like obviously the internet is as vibrant and crazy as it has ever been because everybody's even more online. But you know, yeah, at the same time, like everybody's like just itching to get back into a space together to see a concert or watch a movie. Or um, I mean, there's been I don't know if you've heard, but there's resurgence of like you know physical media in the form of like newspapers and so like underground newspapers and people are just back into to physical, which which I'm I'm glad about. 
Yeah. I'm hearing um, murmurings of like a drunken canal equivalent popping up in London. So oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Drunken <laughs> canal going global. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. The format's contagious. I want to no. see an ion pack in France. So true. Um, we were just saying we need, like we we weirdly don't have as many UK listeners as as you'd think. We're pretty inside baseball, bro. Um, well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, we just love downtown New York, as you know. For I mean, hate it too, but you know, <laughs> well, no, but I th- I think it's interesting for- what you said in the beginning about um, the spaces in LA that you could that you had to create things within because I think maybe a part of the reason why um, the music scene and maybe any art scene in New York is so kind of fractured is, is literally because there's nowhere physically for it to exist. I think, um, you know, people started working alone and with, and with less equipment and that's part of why electronic music became so big in New York. Uh, Totally. Yeah. There just physically wasn't the space to, to play and cultivate it. Um, and Did you guys ever go to any any of the ambient shir- and ambient church shows while those were on in New York? We did. Absolutely. Yes, we did. Yeah, shout out shout out to the ambient church crew. That was just such a smart series because like you were saying, you know, the lack of space, so many musicians are kind of working out of their apartments or bedrooms or off their laptops and I guess ambient music's a really natural format for that way of working and then totally. you have these churches that are desperate for cash flow all over the city and simultaneously are designed to be incredible acoustically. So it's kind of like a perfect, um, you know, meeting of needs. That's totally. Yeah. And you know, I wanted to ask you about like, you know, that, because um, you, you performed one of those with the CEP, the Carolina Elizabeth yeah. Polchak project. And I was curious about like, you know, switching maybe from, from that mode of, of sine wave world to, to, pop music stuff and you know how you were talking about like states of consciousness during creation and stuff a little bit earlier before recording um i just maybe wanted to hear just for a second about how you see those different states of consciousness in terms of making stuff oh that's an interesting way of looking at it well for anyone who's listening to the pod who's not familiar with this like very unknown side project of mine it's um it's a record I made under just my initials with no promotion or campaign or anything um, back in 2015, I think, 2016. And um, I made it all using this kind of synthesizer or this kind of um, wave called a sine wave, which is what you get your hearing tested with, those pure tones that are like beep, beep, like very pure tones. Um, and if you stack them up in interesting ways, they can kind of create this um beating vibration that's rhythmic and if you kind of change the tuning of one pitch against another you can adjust the speed of those vibrations that creates like a really visceral sensation um in your body as well as kind of on a more like you know aural um listening way but those compositions were really interesting to make because i was making them for myself i wasn't making them for anyone else to listen to i was actually making that music for myself to listen to while like taking naps or reading because I have a really hard time focusing while listening to lyrical music. Mm-hmm. So I wanted, I wanted, you know, or even like during a meeting where someone's over and we're workshopping ideas and I just want something to put on in the background that's really like, really kind of blends in. And um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to make something for myself, but also something that was so functional, which yeah. is never a way I've approached music ever. Um it's always so much more about like expression and narrative and aesthetics and um, and never just about use. And so it was actually kind of freeing, you know, to kind of almost act like a furniture designer or something. Yeah. 
um, and get to step outside being an artist with a capital A. But um, but yeah, I feel like that project has aged really well and um, and it's definitely a format I want to go back to for sure. Yeah. But you asked, but you asked about like you know the states of consciousness, and one of the things that was really interesting about making those pieces was I actually didn't allow myself to look at the computer as I was playing them. I would play it mm. with, on a keyboard, and so I had no sense of how long a track was. Um, there was no BPM, no metronome, so everything was hand played. Everything was um, cyclical, rhythmic, repeated patterns. But because it was hand played, you know, nothing, um, no two loops were the same. And yeah, I guess the process of not looking at a computer was really interesting. It made me really tapped into this natural sense of when you get sick of something or when you're like, you want change. Right. Which, you know, because musicians are kind of now the way a lot of people make music electronically is like you're kind of working with like a Lego set of these modular sections of four, eight or 16 bars that fit together. Yeah, you're on the grid and like a lot of decisions feel sort of preset for you so you have to react against them and there's already this kind of tension there whereas this felt completely um free of all that which was exciting yeah that's why those those i mean that show in particular and a lot of the ambient church shows felt so cool is because like in new york you're on this grid and like it felt like a space where you know mm. you were not on the grid for that three hours or whatever off grid that's the name of this episode now yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's go off grid yeah in the middle of new york city <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that way of making music you're talking about on the grid is um, it becomes a, you know, an interactive thing in the same way maybe, uh, a, you know, a guitarist used to interact with a drummer or whatever. It it's a, mm -hmm. becomes a conversation, but it's obviously a very different type of conversation than, um, uh, you know, two people playing instruments or, or whatever, singing whatever together. So yeah, it is, you know, I think it's important for um, a lot of musicians who end up on the grid all the time to, to try to find exercises that, that take you out of it. Not, not that it's bad. I mean, I, all the music that's made that way, I, I love too. But I, I think it's a, it's a healthy exercise. I think so too. And I think it's actually the kind of the future of, of music at the moment right now. And I say that, you know, being like neck deep in a record that's, very, right. you know, very much like in a kind of on the grid mentality. But I think it sometimes takes those kind of pivotal moments to to see it clearly. Yeah. It's, do you guys know that um, that SZA song, Good Days? It's yeah. a massive hit right now. Yeah. It's funny because I mm -hmm. when I first heard that song, I mistakenly thought that there was nothing at all that repeated in the song. And I, I was my my mind was blown. I was like, oh God, there's this huge hit charting massively right now that nothing repeats. It's just this like stream of consciousness, you know, long comp long composed, yeah. jammy thing. And then I listened to it a couple of times more. I was like, oh, damn it. Like, it actually <laughs> is a pretty traditional pop structure. But even that was a kind of glimpse of what's possible. These like really hooky kind of meandering compositions that I don't know, maybe it's like a, and kind of the way like techno would have felt or psych would have felt when or prog even totally. when those genres were new but i think there's like a a, a a space for a renaissance of that way of thinking and working totally the kind of a disruption of the pop structure yeah of those kind of switchy theatrical dynamics essentially well it's actually interesting you you say that because you recently covered breathless by the cores uh -huh. um, and that key change in the chorus is I, I've always just been obsessed with that key change because 
It's something that would never happen in a pop song anymore. Um, and it's such a smart move to uh, not only emphasize the chorus melody, but to make the entire kind of contour of the entire song's melody way more kind of complex and disruptive. And even though it's still technically a standard song structure, it, it does feel disruptive in that way. Well, that's the thing about pop structures is they always should be Trojan horses for like one or more clever new ideas. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, that's, that, you know, that song couldn't be more by the books in terms of its structure, but that's what's great about it is you Trojan horse in this amazing key change where you pivot up a fourth at the top of each chorus and then so elegantly pivot back down without anyone noticing. Yeah. Um, yeah, just doing that cover was kind of a master class in just you know, those key changes and getting excited about trying that out myself. Yeah, it's, it's a really smart move. I mean, I think it's such a great song, but I, if it stayed in the home key the whole time, I, I don't think it would have fully hit it, the level that it hit. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I see a, there's a little bit of a parallel with, with movies that kind of... Uh, excite me in this in this mode too where there's like mm. the trojan horse concept of like if you get these major stars you can kind of make everybody believe that it's going to be this sort of hollywood you know three-act <laughs> structure thing but then if you kind of subvert that you can make something that's really exciting and still get people to go watch it like an uncut gems kind of thing yeah uncut gems i mean i feel like spring breakers back in the day yeah. kind of felt yeah. like something yeah. i was like oh this is not the movie everybody thought they signed up for yeah exactly um, it can still give you some of those feelings, but also expand where you, where they go. And uh, that kind of dissonance is uh, exciting. Yeah, it's yeah. great. So is the, is the music that you're working, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the music that you're working on now or like what mode you're in now? Yeah. Um, well, I started, I started writing this record um, last winter. So I guess about a year ago um, with the intention to, get a handful of like really exciting fun singles out before festival season because I wanted new material to play in the 20 to the 2020 festival season and um, obviously that didn't happen and those songs became entirely unrelatable by April because I didn't want to really think about like sexy fun pop songs right. um, while recovering from COVID and watching like you know the news get really really scary so I actually put all that I put that stuff that I'd started on ice completely and didn't touch it for about six months and entered into a period of like quite random scrappy collabs, most of which didn't see the light of day, but a couple um, that did um, with other artists remotely. And then after going to Italy for a bit over the summer, which was wild because at that point, you know, Italy had done such a good job with COVID that ever, everything was open and people were acting like completely normal and partying and, um, yeah, after after being in Sicily for a bit and and in this kind of parallel universe, this kind of like hot-blooded, chaotic, you know, also Sicily kind of represents so much of like the collapse of Europe in a way. Like it's completely like lawless and a lot of it's like quite poor um, and falling apart. But yet it's it's got this like essential energy, you know, it's literally like a volcano surrounded by a city. So you have this kind of sense of chaos just built into the place. Um, and I was just so like turned on by being there. And I came back and kind of started back up again in terms of writing new material and was just, yeah, just really inspired by this kind of like very essential kind of idea of like chaotic vitality. And especially with this idea that, you know, we're all going to be coming out of this 
pandemic together and like this idea of of music being a battery and especially being a so a social battery too if people are coming together and feeling really awkward around each other that kind of music can be this kind of you know merciful force mm-hmm. um and so just writing kind of with that in mind so this yeah this stuff is way less narrative way less personal but um at the same time kind of more spiritual well the italians do it better <laughs> literally <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so you're saying this music, despite being maybe less narratively about you, is yeah. again more tapped into your higher self. Yeah, I mean, it can never not be about you, but totally. Um, but yeah, yeah. Something we get into here in, into here sometimes is, and I'm curious to hear about maybe your experiences with it. Is you know, with tapping into sort of other forces. Do you have any? Um, background in meditation or any sort of i mean i know that you probably have some interest in in new age stuff but i was just curious to to hear about any daily practices or anything like that man i really wish that i had the discipline to pursue that kind of thing um when i was a kid i had pretty disruptive adhd and um despite you know my elementary school kind of like putting a lot of pressure on my mom to medicate me she didn't, but she put me and my sister on a pretty steady regiment of like new age CDs, like from like the new age section from Barnes and Nobles, like not artists that mm-hmm. anyone yeah, knows right. <laughs> um, as a way to calm me down and make me do my homework and try to make me go to bed. And that music, you know, I think those textures had like a massive influence on me. Obviously, there was a lot of Enya and Sade on rotation as there is for like a lot of people in our generation. But Big shots. Yeah, huge shots. Yeah, I mean, those are perfect productions. But um, but yeah, I think, you know, new age music kind of entered entered through the back door for me that way. Um, but I work and live in a pretty kind of spontaneous, uh, unregulated way. I don't have any kind of rituals. You know, I get asked all the time what my backstage rituals are. I appreciate, I literally am just doing my makeup and getting dressed right up until the last second and running <laughs> right, on stage. Yeah. Like, I don't even, I don't even warm up. <laughs> um but uh, but yeah, it's funny. I maybe I in some ways making music is the closest that I get to that. Yeah. Like having this time that gets put aside where I'm by myself and looping. You know, even the process of looping something. Oh and yeah. I'm also a non-lyrical writer. Like I always write melodically first, and mm-hmm. then I'm stuck with the absolutely horrible task of trying to find words that both suit the emotion of what's already in the music, and then fit into these kind of really busy melodies that I'll have sung. Yeah. Right. So even the process of looking for those words is actually a very meditative one because you can't really approach it the way, uh, you know, like a screenwriter or a, a novelist or even a poet would because you have so many restrictions. It's kind of like playing Tetris or like, um, it's like that feeling of when you're making a pun. Like there's nothing logical about it. It just kind of appears to you. Like these two things connect um, Mm-hmm. And like semi-logically, but you're not really in control of that pun-making process. It's either there or it's not. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like that. Right. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, yeah, I also am a songwriter, so I, I know the process. And yeah, you kind of come up with, you, you have like vowel shapes. So you're, you're already kind of narrowing down what you, can, what you can write. But yeah, it doesn't quite have meaning yet. But maybe, maybe it does. Maybe there's some kind of a subconscious pre-written thing there that's just begging you to find it totally but i think the state that you get in to do that is 
is kind of related to what you were talking about, about, um, you know, meditation and tapping into a kind of higher or lower, actually. For me, it kind of feels lower form of <laughs> consciousness. Right. Well, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think I know what you mean by lower. It's, it's kind of like uh, um, more instinctual and less, uh, you're not filtering it through. Uh, Analysis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it kind of connects to the physical spaces thing too, in a, in a way for me. Like when people gather together to watch a movie or go to ambient church or something, there's mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. this like collective trance that everybody's kind of going through this this spiritual meditation thing that kind of you know helps you or does something to you by by the end of it, and it does have a similar effect. Definitely, yeah, I really miss that. Yeah, I think yeah. Every, I think that's maybe the the thing that we maybe missed out on most is just yeah communal experiences and like whatever spiritual value, or creative value, or just life value that 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 has and mm. hopefully returns. Yeah, I think it. I mean, I, I know I say this all the time, but I really do think live performance uh, is going to come back with a vengeance. I think it's something everyone's starved for. Um, and it's it's kind of weird because we, this is the first time in musical history where uh, music was was fully born in the studio first. Uh, I mean, you know, there's plenty of examples of that, but but this is the first time where that's kind of the norm. Uh, it gets made in a studio and then has to be interpreted for live performance. Um, you have to you know figure out how you're going to communicate it live, whereas it used to be you figured it out, you wrote it live. Um, then had to figure it out in the studio, um, and that that I think that there's been oh, been a kind of issue with this uh, past decade of of how to to fully make that work. Um, but you know we haven't been as starved I think to make it work as we are right now. So I I really do think it's going to bring some interesting performances. Absolutely, I wonder if we'll see the return of like a lot of live drums. Yeah, I, I, I mean, think so. I think as so. Someone, yeah, as someone who is in a band with live drums for like 14 years, I have such incredible PTSD about being in a rehearsal space with a drummer. Just my ears hurt even just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. But, and also, annoying. you know, especially being part of a Brooklyn indie scene in the early 2000s, like there was just so many kind of cliches to like drum style and, mm -hmm. um, it felt kind of important for me to take a, a big step away from it. But it's funny. I, I do feel like that that is kind of the most essential live gig thing to see is someone hitting something. Yeah. And I wonder <laughs> if like that's going to be the new, the new like, you know, essential live music component is yeah, a live drummer. I think so. Because it's the kind of thing where, you know, something so physical like hitting a drum, the way that that, uh, you know, reverberates in the space that you're in is yeah. its own kind of dynamic that can't, you know, not that other dynamics or backing tracks or whatever are worse or anything like that, but it's just, it's a different kind of dynamic that can't be replicated by doing anything else. Yeah. Well, it's been totally. 808s and heartbreak for a while now. Yeah. Um, totally. Yeah, so maybe that, yeah, I, I do I do see that happening. But it's going to be great. I, it's going to be like I, a, a golden era of live music, I think. Yeah. I'm mean, just kind of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, when yeah, you're recording please. now, are you are you? I mean, I imagine you're thinking about the the live performance, but is it is it playing less of a role maybe than it used to? It's funny. I've barely been thinking about 
how the instrumentation will sit. Like, I, I think I've never thought about it less than I do right now. Mm-hmm. I'm only thinking about how it's going to feel in my body to sing it. And, right. like, essentially how uh, how bodied of a, of a vocal line I can write so that I can, like, stand up on a festival stage and just, like, deliver blood and guts, essentially. I don't yeah, mean yeah. that in a kind of, like... I don't mean to say that this is going to be like Diamanda Galas singing. I mean that it's going to be like, I just wanted to be super bodied and full of heart and um, and really intense. So I'm thinking about, yeah, how it will feel as a performer to sing this material more so than, you know, if there's going to be a drummer. I'll, I guess I'll, I trust that all that stuff will kind of come together later. You want to body the verse. I want to body the verse. <laughs> That's what we're all trying to do at the end of the day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but no i think i think what you're talking about is uh is is essentially the same principle it's um the way you use your instrument you know how you, the way, how your instrument kind of cuts through the cuts through the air in a in-person setting yeah totally also i think you know there's more interest than ever in hearing things being quite different live than they are on record so yeah. that's pretty liberating yeah i always i i think that's uh that that's an important thing uh uh you know if you can if you want to hear the record you can stay home and listen to the record uh yeah. live is a different experience one thing i really hoped would happen this year that i ha- that hasn't maybe it's cuz everyone's just shy when it comes down to it but i'd kind of hoped that you know covid would lead to there being these kind of impromptu after dinner musical performances, like someone just getting out a guitar and sitting on the table or, yeah. you know, yeah, um, even just bringing over like their pedals and their synth or whatever, and just friends playing for each other. And I've been kind of hoping slash waiting for that to happen for a while as a dynamic, you know, cause I think there's nothing more exciting than risk and exclusivity. And that's like the ultimate combination of it you know also playing in front of friends is way more terrifying than playing yeah. in front oh of my god oh, it's an yeah. audience yeah so, I, I it, it's people don't realize it's way less nerve-wracking to play in front of hundreds of people you don't know than it is to play a small gig in front of your friends oh yeah not not anywhere close um and i i haven't so much as heard about that happening well you should have seen um, us after our dinner showing up with the theremin hey <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go, bro. Where's my invite? I'm coming over. <laughs> You're in London. <laughs> how's uh, how's the how's like the scene in London for like, you know, just like who you're maybe collaborating with or just like the the sense there of, you know, the feeling of the music scene and I, I don't really have a sense of what it's like there right now. Well, I'm an outsider and my understanding of the London music scene is extremely unnuanced. Like I understand kind of vaguely that there's like a indie revival happening in South London, but in a kind of like punk, like grunge adjacent way. And that West London has like this, you know, relationship with like singer songwriter stuff and um, with like dub and, um, and obviously there's so much electronic music happening here through so many different kind of scenes, like the warp adjacent scene and mm-hmm. um yeah, and then there's a lot of like rap here that I'm kind of vaguely aware of, and drill. There's so much sick drill music coming the out drill of London. Coming out of London is far. Uh, that's kind of the most like adventurous, cool is, yeah. music here right now. Not that I know anyone in that scene, but um, 
But I don't know, I guess as an outsider, like I'm meeting people quite randomly, mostly on Instagram DM being like, oh, you're here. I'm here. Let's meet up. And as a result, like I end up hanging out with people across very different age and scene spectrums. And at least over the summer last year was kind of like, you know, introducing people to each other who are English that have just never crossed paths. So that's been kind of interesting um, that I get kind of like a free hall pass to like have no intelligent context for combining people um, just based on who I'm meeting and enjoy hanging out with. But, um, you know, the PC music crew, which was mostly based in London and has since kind of scattered, that's still kind of my spirit home in terms of the London music scene and um, yeah, I've been doing a bunch of collaboration with Danielle Harl and Felicita, um, and big was shouts working to on Big Danny. Big shouts to Danny. Yeah, I was working with Sophie on some stuff last summer as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I um, a parallel between the PC music scene and the drill scene, in my mind, and I think it's it's true for American hip hop as well. Um, well, okay. Between drill and American hip hop, it's the only real music in the mainstream arena that feels truly DIY, um, and and, and oh, truly homegrown. I guess is is maybe a better word. Uh, and I think that the PC music scene uh, was exciting and is still exciting because it it also has that that spirit. Like it does feel totally homegrown. And this this crew of people, uh, you know, working off of each other and 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 cultivating this thing. It wasn't uh, it wasn't cooked up by I don't know uh, a manager or it wasn't made for the algorithm. You know. Yeah, it wasn't like a it wasn't a, a session in L.A. between two people that had never met before. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, so many of the kind of ideas that were fresh from that scene have since been assimilated and, and kind of made the norm, which is also exciting and um, and very influential and special. Totally. But yeah, I'm interested what, in what you mean by, by DIY in that sense, because I kind of feel like all music or a lot of music has become that at this point. It, it That's why I said maybe homegrown is a better word. It feels mm. like, like something that was truly just uh, uh, happened upon um, between you know, a group of, of friends and collaborators as opposed to something that was made with a specific uh, trajectory or goal in mind. Uh, something that feels totally cultivated on its own that then kind of bled into the into a wider audience or a more mainstream audience. And part of what's so exciting and like essential about that as well is the fact that, you know, most of the actors in the drill scene are totally anonymous yeah. and they have to stay anonymous. Yeah, And that in itself, like, you know, and you have that level of exclusivity, you get really interesting results. And I I think and I hope and predict that that kind of exclusivity is going to, you know, within scenes is going to be something that people start looking for and protecting and, I don't know, and like fostering rather than this kind of more open-minded, you know, you mentioned 808s and Heartbreaks. I think like, you know, Kanye and Rihanna and Beyonce, like those hyper collaborative albums set the template that we've been living in, yeah. you know, since then for no, over I'm a decade. This yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I, I do have a friend in, in London who does send me a lot of this, this drill stuff. And when he's been asked to do production work for it, he's like, I have no name. This person, you know, has been in and out of jail. Like they're wearing a mask in their music video. Like it's, these people are like completely again off the grid. And yeah. It, 
it does feel like, yeah, like maybe this is something to be protected. And this, you know, if, if the art's this vibrant, then maybe there's something special going on. Yeah, I think there's so many reasons to to stay that protected, but it's difficult, you know, especially when musicians aren't making much money via streaming. It's like there's a lot of pressure to say yes to things just to make ends meet. But, um, but yeah, I think I think kind of privacy is the new. Uh, I don't know. It's the new fame. Yeah, yeah. Totally. It's the new vitality, or like it's the new originality. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something to be said. I mean, obviously, we know about this. There's something to be said in a very kind of identity conscious culture to make something that your identity is totally stripped away from. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, well, as soon as, yeah, no, continue. Uh, I mean, I was just going to say, I think it, it actually ironically can make the output uh, a little more authentic to the person who's making it when they strip their identity from it. Yeah. And there's more attention on the work itself, I exactly. think, from creation and from consumption. But then, of course, everybody come, becomes obsessed with what the identity is or who it is. And, you know, there's a million Reddit things about, like, oh, it's this person or that person. You know, it's like the burial effect of, like, oh, now i got to drop a selfie so people stop talking about this. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but that yeah. doesn't even kill it to me. It's still, it, even though we know who burial is, it's still, you know, he still has not made that a kind of uh, forefronted part of of what's important or what you should get out of the music. So it, it still retains the effect to me. Yeah, no live performance, no appearance. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, you're on a you're on an anonymous podcast right now. <laughs> I know, you guys, you're living it. Yeah, but this is actually. Um, this leads me to another question that we've talked about on this pod before, but the kind of dominance of streaming services and, um, you know, the, the, uh, culture of, uh, really, uh, spotlighting your identity and, and becoming a, you know, hyper PR for yourself. What, what would be your, I guess, advice or it doesn't even have to be advice, but what, what do you think, uh, maybe a young artist could do to not fall into the trap of making music or any art for the algorithm? I mean, my heart goes out so deeply to, to anyone, to the young musicians like entering, you know, the, the release landscape right now. Like, I can't imagine a tougher time. Yeah. Um, and in that same way, it's actually kind of almost difficult for me to relate to, like, or to understand how one would even operate make you know putting new material out there right now and it's funny that you just talked you know we just talked about the kind of power of anonymity and how exciting that is but on the flip side nothing gives you music more meaning than connecting it to an identity outside it yeah um yeah, yeah. and unfortunately i think that is the answer it's not so much making that snappy three minute 10 second track you know that hits the first chorus by 25 seconds it's like those rules kind of don't apply and have stopped applying it's all about the social context that people are able to build um on tiktok and instagram and and i find that really scary um yeah. even as there's so much creativity on those platforms but i guess community is the number one thing right like having having community that's real like yeah yep people whose work you love who understand what you're doing and appreciate what you're doing and boosting signal boosting like creating these feedback loops of signal boosting 
um, because that's that's going to be always more potent and longer lasting and um, and interesting than like making the new music Friday playlist and then disappearing a week later. Right. Right. Well, yeah. This is this is what I was saying too about the homegrown aspect of certain. Uh, you know, music scenes or, or uh, micro scenes or whatever. It, that's that kind of uh, IRL uh, word of mouth growing with each mm -hmm. other kind of thing that can't fully be tapped into in the same way online, I don't think. Um, or, or at least online, there's a danger of, yeah, just falling into the trap of streaming services and algorithms and playlists. Um, that kind of the the lack of IRL scene building is is I think a, a problem. Yeah, but also maybe maybe that's our age speaking as well. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah. I think PC music, if anything, was a testament to those kind of scenes existing online. Like that fandom wasn't localized. That was an online fandom that was really organic and really connected to each other. Yeah, that's true. Right, because even though everyone kind of uh, involved with making it were, was an IRL thing. Yeah, the the kind of uh, fandom of it totally popped up online. That's true. That's true. Yeah. PC also, I, I have a lot PC of... Music. But that was also, that was pre, um, you know, Spotify taking over as much as it has. Totally. I mean, there are, there are a handful of musicians who are very, like, dedicated to a Bandcamp format. Um, mm -hmm. Like, Shout out to Jamie Brooks and Default Gender. Is that, oh, I mean, I'm a oh, yeah. massive. Huge shouts. We're big fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massive fan. Since um, the Elite Gymnastics days. Oh, same, same. But she only only puts her records up on Bandcamp and um, and I think has a really dedicated fan base that feels very um, loyal to supporting her on yeah, that format. Yeah. yeah. There's a handful of musicians that have that experience where it's like they've kind of got their crew and they can kind of have a sustainable you know, some source of, of income or support with releasing, you know, music in that way, which which is great. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think PC Music, when they kind of first hit the scene, their, they were, their relationship to SoundCloud was similar to this Bandcamp relationship we're talking about. And that's, I mean, that's mm -hmm. the, the best outcome of, you know, the internet age is, is something like SoundCloud or Bandcamp. And uh, that's why it, it kind of, stresses me out that somehow the streaming services have popped in so fast and took over so fast that uh you know all of a sudden making music feels even less accessible somehow even though it should be in theory with the internet more accessible to people than ever well that's the kind of irony there right because put making stuff for soundcloud that's completely demonetized like you're not making money off that at all right. they were just doing it for the fun of it and you can feel that that translates and that builds and I hate to I hate to say that like my advice to you know young musician is to do it for free um, because that's what Spotify is also telling you to do. Right. Um, but I think if you're doing it for the love of it and you're doing it for fun and you're doing it for your friends, that always is like the magic combination. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was interesting what you were saying about um, you know attaching yourself to an identity or something that is you know publicly being put mm -hmm. forth and i was wondering about your relationship with with that like did you feel maybe with pang like something that's maybe a little bit more pop oriented than like the zep record like did you feel like oh i need to have like this sort of like person like online persona or like attach it to like i'm i'm this now yeah i did and it actually really kind of messed with my head because 
the music was so sincere and so vulnerable and I guess I have a much more chaotic, playful, stupid relationship with being on social media. And I was really worried for a while about how to like make it all feel coherent. And then I realized that I didn't have to and that it would be okay. Right. Um, and that, you know, especially as like a woman that I think having a kind of like humorous and slightly trollish approach to even representing music that's hyper sincere is kind of feels good and feels totally very pre like con contemporary. So once I made peace with that, it was kind of like, you know, and also there's such a relationship between like surrealism and, and humor. And I'm kind of leaning more into that now than I ever have before. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think the one thing that kind of scared me was this idea that you have to put your, your real life events on display, like your relationships and you know, you're doing your makeup and I just kind of decided to bypass all of it and was worried that I was making some kind of sacrifice by not doing that. And it was totally fine. Totally. But also uh, people who kind of do that, it still feels like a hyper curated kind of uh, just advertising thing. Um, you know, I, I think that's the split you're talking about between being like trollish, quote unquote, versus what a lot of people are falling into now, which seems like a kind of, you know, performative um, openness on social media. It still feels hyper curated and super, you know, PR. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. And the record label, you know, the record labels are still telling you to do that. Um, I was I was still with um, Columbia Records when I was doing the campaign lead up to Pang before I managed to split off and do my own imprint. Um, but Oh yeah, they were they were telling me like we want more lifestyle content on YouTube, like you know. And I was like, oh my god, you got to yeah. do the makeup tutorial. <laughs> I know, I know. They're like your YouTube al algorithms, like you're only putting up music content. We need you to put up more life. I was like, oh my god, yeah, the wrong girl. We've got the wrong girl. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, again, I think it's also a generational thing. I think people that that grew up on social media, I think, are way more. Uh, I don't know. They approach that idea way with way more kind of thicker skin. Totally, totally. Well, also there is a genuine. It's funny. I mean, ironically, there is a genuine desire. It's like people want to see other people exist and hear them talk and like to listen to yes. them on podcast or watch them get dressed in the morning or whatever. Massively, and I actually love that kind of. I love that stuff as well, and kind of find myself falling into like a trance-like state watching people's IG lives that are really boring. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we like to hear each other speak, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is what podcasts are. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, fun. it's just fun to, I mean, the IG live thing is interesting because like, I, I think maybe they still haven't fixed this, but there's no way to archive it. So it's actually, you know, it's like, it is this like temporal thing that kind of like goes away and unless somebody's recording it, like it's like you're tuning into something that's happening in real time that kind of doesn't exist 15 minutes later, which, which I don't know, it kind of like it ups the ante a little bit or something. And it, it is sort of hypnotic. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. But at the same time, anything can be recorded. You know, it's like, I remember when I was first starting out as a musician, I had this idea that if, you know, if we were playing a show that was really small or like in some really out of the way place that I didn't really have to care too much about the performance because it couldn't really spread. And then I learned very fast that that's not true. Everyone's right. got a camera. Like you can't let your guard down. You can't play a bad gig because it ends up online. Oh yeah. I think, I think that same kind of mentality now applies to things like IG Live. Like there's no such thing as 
a private or like low key appearance. Everything has the potential, you know, to be amplified, and that's kind of exciting. No, yeah, I mean, some of the most exciting stuff I've seen online in the past couple of years is like a snippet, for like forty minutes into somebody's live, where they like say something crazy, like, and it's, it has been recorded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what everyone's waiting for as well, to grab that one bit that goes viral on their Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, that's the those are the real exciting like version of of a, some crazy like paparazzi video or something. Yeah, totally. So I'm I'm curious, like I want to go back to that idea of kind of um, like scene privacy and like exclusivity that we were talking about a second ago, because mm -hmm. like. I'm curious if within the New York scene, especially within, you know, your kind of more localized music scene, if there are any versions of that, like people kind of sharing things with each other and like, you know, kind of developing a Petri dish of aesthetics and ideas and conversations that aren't leaking outwards. Are you feeling that at all? Um, I don't know, because the New York music scene does feel very insular and... Um, kind of shut off but but not in a healthy way it's somehow different mm. it, it feels like um there's a lot of you know scene politics and and uh uh you know interpersonal stuff that that feels like it kind of overshadows the music a lot of the time mm. What's cool is that I feel like in in New York, like it doesn't necessarily feel as advanced in, in the in the music uh, territory as it does like like in terms of film or like the writing world especially. Like it does feel like there's a genuine like undercurrent of material that's only being shared between uh, a group of people, um, whether it be like you know short films or little features or yeah newspapers, you know uh, pieces of poetry writing articles which sometimes do break through and like make it to some outlet but i i actually don't know much about it but we, we do know people where i'm like i think these these kids are up to like all kinds of stuff that we that is not visible to us online or in person yeah That's exciting yeah well i mean it, it, i'm not making a judgment call on this but i th we've said this before there is a a new phenomenon new to this generation or really the past decade where the goal of any underground artist to some degree is a brush with the mainstream. Uh, mm -hmm. I definitely doesn't feel like anyone is just doing it to exist in their scene or, or in their world or exist for the other people who are, who are there there. It still feels like there is a, um, there is a trajectory in everyone's minds of, you know, you do this so that you can, the right person finds you and boosts you to a higher stage. And it's because yeah. of that thicker skin that Caroline's talking about. It's like they're sort of, they're less Gen X about like, oh, you know, fuck the corporations. Like they're like, no, I want the Times Review. Like exactly. I want it to exist for all these people. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing because I do think that, um, you know, when underground things uh, bleed into the mainstream, that's how some of the best stuff gets made. Um, I mean, we've used the example of Frank Ocean before. Um, I think that's a perfect example of when it can become when something really good can come out of smaller things kind of coalescing and, and, and turning into a thing that's on a larger stage. Oh yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have gotten SZA good days without Frank Ocean. Yeah. Exactly. It's his effect. Exactly. That sort of free flowing. Yeah. But there's, but the, it's also a product of, well, you know, a record label used to want to find, you know, some artists that was playing clubs that, 
could potentially be turned into something really big and had a lot of raw talent and they wanted to you know bring them in and give them a budget and develop them uh and now it's the opposite you know labels and and managers want someone who already has an online following who already kind of has to some degree mastered their social media game um who has already proved that they can that they can uh uh you know bring some type of audience to the table and and it's it's weird because now the labels don't even give advances anymore so it's like you have to do more work for for no money now it seems like a paradox but i i think that that kind of mindset is is kind of leading to the thing i'm talking about where everybody every artist also becomes a pr person and uh, uh becomes just as focused on their kind of social media game as what they're making which is kind of it's so striking when you look back at like interviews in the 90s right because you see musicians like absolutely like spitting on journalists yeah like treating journalists like shit being like i don't want to be here i got put up to this you want my time sure whatever ask me whatever you want i'm ready to walk out the drop of the hat and i think that was really exciting and really useful actually to have artists in the position of being able to push back um against you know journalism and media and now you know by default you kind of have to kiss ass because if you, know, you got to be friends. <laughs> well, also, like, if you're in the chair, it's because you decided to sit there, right? That, that yeah. I think musicians were kind of more forced to sit there before, so there's right. this kind of fun tension of, um, yeah, of responsibility, whereas now, like, everyone's so professional. And I think that leads to, like, boring, you know, boring media and kind of boring culture in, in that 100%. Yeah, yeah, we had a guest on Annie Hamilton who said everyone's so goddamn presidential. And it just really <laughs> stuck with me. Yeah. And I guess the, the radical gestures are the things we don't see is like the people who are saying no to stuff, right? That's the kind of more radical gesture. Like, no, I'm not going to do that That yeah. interview. No, And and we don't get to witness the no's, you know? Yeah. But but they do they do accrue and like create a kind of mystique and a sense of taste and, and cool that's hard to define totally we were just talking about uh dean blunt sending an actor to receive his enemy award oh so good yeah we need more stuff like that happening yeah oh so good yeah that's the best stuff um but but yeah i mean it it's just it obviously you know it's not the case for everything you know something like like Lil Peep or someone is is a good example. Like that actually did just fully happen organically. But but that is kind of in the the old model I'm talking about, where this thing just kind of grew and people in high places took note and then uh, followed suit. But that's usually yeah. not how it happens anymore. And that grew out of SoundCloud. I mean, like that was him having exactly. fun and like making stuff that was important to him. And then everyone was like, "This is this is it." And he's got executives emailing him or whatever. Right. So I guess I will kind of contradict what I said earlier, um, because Carol, what Caroline, what you said was right of uh, like how PC music started on on the internet. You know, it doesn't have to be an IRL scene, like I said earlier, but it does. I, I, I do think that sense of kind of homegrown uh, audience uh, building is is really important and it's getting lost the more every artist just tries to be their own PR person right out the gate. Yeah. It's a kind of fun mental game to play too, like imagining that you're an A&R at a label, like what would you sign? How would you even go about looking for a band? Yeah, I know. 
I mean, I try to figure out who some of those drill people were, probably. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you uh, what, like? What are you listening to? Like, do you listen to a lot of stuff when you're recording? You know, actually, I don't. Um, I I don't. I've been listening to um, actually kind of a lot of classical music at the moment, um, and mostly a lot of. I mean, ironically, a lot of drumless music. I just you know, in relation to what we were talking about earlier, about right. drums being like the ultimate post-COVID catharsis. I've been, yeah, I think my ears have felt kind of tender um, in my own private listening. And um, yeah, let's see, what have I been really hyped on? Just are you are there. you watching stuff? Like, is there visual media that's pushing Yeah, you some. I've been on a kind of Almodovar bender for the last couple of weeks. Big shouts. Um, big shouts. Maybe it's just because it feels kind of like connected with that kind of hot-blooded Sicilian energy. Italians <laughs> um, do it better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just that kind of mania um, that I love. But let's see, what have I been listening to recently? Um, yeah, I've been listening to yeah, kind of like classical adjacent string music, like Alex Summers, Oliver Coates, listening to some Coil. Nice. Oh, um, you chose. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm listening to a lot of stuff I guess you'd qualify as ambient music, but not in a hyper-attentive way. Right. I mean, it's interesting what you said about, like, having stuff on in the background to kind of set a mood. And we talked to Dean Hurley yesterday, um, and he was talking about, like, getting through the menial work of, of sound editing, but he'll have a movie on in the background. And it's sort of interesting, these, like, things that we, we do to sort of, like, alleviate the the, the pain of uh, the, the minutia of creative work and it sounds like it's a common theme that people are putting stuff on in the background to kind of make the experience better it's funny i get so absorbed in the minutia almost kind of in a psychedelic way i can't imagine having another film on no yeah I, that was seemed crazy to me i was like you have a movie <laughs> on in the background what are you talking about <laughs> yeah I, it's good to be absorbed in the minutia that was another thing we were talking about um of you know i find myself not enjoying the process. I love when I have the idea for something mm -hmm. and I love uh, once it is, you know, mostly done and I can start to give it life and, and share it. I love that. But the, the process should be something holy. And too many times I find myself, um, you know, feeling like it's, you know, I say it's like throwing up. I'm just like desperate to get it out and it feels like stressful. I just want it over with. Uh, yeah, or like the dung beetle trying to roll at the thing up the hill. Yeah, exactly. Very relatable image. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's, you know, I think it's it's important to get past that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess it, maybe now is kind of a good time for everyone to really kind of rethink their relationship with their workflow too. Like even just texturally, like what am I looking at? What am I touching? What am I interacting with? Like... Does it have to be this way? Can I make it more holy, like you were saying? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, not to keep bringing it back to this, but I do think that, uh, you know, maybe I'm just speaking from my own perspective, but I do think the way um, artists are, are now kind of hyper forced to, to treat it as a, as what they do as a business and a product uh, does lead to that kind of lack of enjoyment. Um, and I think the more, you know, pulled in a musician gets to 
the algorithms and, and trying to figure out how to make it in this landscape, the more they're going to fall victim to that. Whereas, you know, something that feels more fun and homegrown and, and cultivated uh, by yourself without a kind of real goal in mind is, is how you can end up enjoying the process of making it all the more. Yeah. Totally. But at the same time, you know, without actual deadlines, which let's face it, musicians very rarely have deadlines. Right. You know, if, if, if something is quite homegrown and there's no delivery expectation, you can kind of like tail chase forever on something without the pressure to actually put it out. And I think things like club nights, for example, served as like a really good form of that. Like, like shit, I'm DJing this night tomorrow night. I want to have these new songs ready to play. Like, right. I'm going to force them out. And I think there's different different forms of that kind of professionalism yep. or like delivery or just shipping, you know, that, that the pressure to ship takes many forms. Yeah. Um, do you have that now? Like, would you think that you would like crumble without that sort of structure? Ironically, this is the first record I've ever done that has a deadline, a delivery <laughs> deadline. Um, and it's because I have a, a tour booked um, for the fall that I have to have, you know, anyway, I won't get too into it. But um, but yeah, I don't think I would crumble without it because like I said, I kind of really get off on the process um, and I'm happy to stay in the lab forever. But, but yeah, there is, I don't know, there is a kind of a gratifying side to shipping, right? Like hitting export, like sending it off and like, this oh, is yeah. the final mix. Like it's exciting and it's gratifying, but yeah, I think it's, it's easy to slip into that kind of professional mindset. Like I'm a real musician. I'm a real creative professional. That's yes. why I'm doing this rather than it being like, I've made my peace with every decision in here and this is, this is it. So. Right. Well, yeah, but well, but to that being said, it, it is definitely uh, overworking something is, is another horrible trap to fall into. So it, you know, it, it does feel really good to, to, kind of commit yourself to to something and just be like all right i'm I, i'm not going to push this anymore i'm going to you know get to the point of no return yeah totally and also i think looking for opportunities to be pushed so that the um i don't know giving yourself these deadlines that force a form of freshness like like yeah. a club night you know like, a, yeah. like an nts show or something that you feel like the stakes are high creatively but not you know in terms of the algorithm right yeah self-imposed uh restrictions are, are always are always great in my experience yeah totally. my, yeah my, my new life hack is to like book as much stuff in a day for myself <laughs> to do and make myself as busy as possible so that i basically have no time to do anything and i end up getting like 10 times as much stuff oh yeah totally totally wow <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's it's very stressful when you're booking it you're like oh man i've got like an hour in between that and that and then and then I have to do this from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. Like, I'm just, like, setting up insane, like, schedules for myself. But it, it kind of it just, like, it gives me, like, a momentum to kind of, like, riff off of where I'm just, like, I'm just, like, I have to do it. If I don't do this, then I'm doing that the next hour. So I don't know what to do. Because otherwise <laughs> I'll just be in bed all day and do nothing. Yeah. Well, okay, I have this weird um, ritual that I do to myself. Uh, all right. I'm going to try to explain it. Uh -oh. So I have this thing where if I'm putting off doing something, it could be something big, you know, you know, related to something art wise that I'm working on, or it could literally just be like, I need to go buy, you know, milk 
and walk down the block and get it and I'm putting it off. I have this thing where if I recognize I'm putting something off, I have to start, I start counting down from five in my head and when I hit one, yeah. I have to do it. <laughs> and I've, I've never not done it only because I have years and years long streak of having always done the thing I'm putting off as soon as I find myself counting down to five. So the only reason I do it is to kind of continue this streak I have with myself. But it's like I force that countdown on myself. I've just made it so I have no other choice. Otherwise, I break my streak. <laughs> that is so beautiful. Also, your kind of loyalty to yourself, both past and future self, is like really admirable. Well, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it like uh, it, it. I think it does. Uh, there is something to be said, uh, you know, psychologically for uh, mm -hmm. having your own back in that way. I think it's. Uh, I think it's healthy. I, I would encourage people to try it. Clearly, we have deep motivation problems. <laughs> well, you also have like some good solutions. So, <laughs> yeah, right. that's a great circle. solution. I think of it in the same way. Like I always think about things that I'm putting off as painful, and like once I kind of reverse the psychology of if I walk into that pain and embrace it, like it'll set me free. I like I start desiring the pain of doing something, and then it ultimately sets me free once I'm once I'm finished it. Mm. Yeah, I wish I wish I had that like logical kind of conditioned response. You'd think that you know by the time you're in your 30s that would exist, but I end up tapping into a part of myself from my early 20s. So when I was in college, I worked like five side jobs mm -hmm. um, just to like essentially afford to pay for a practice space being in a band, and um, and a bunch of those side jobs were assisting artists because I went to art school. So I was, you know, stretching canvases and fabricating and doing people's taxes and archiving. Um, and honestly, working as an artist assistant taught me way more than college did. But, um, but you know, I got really jealous of those artists. Like, God, it'd be so cool one day to have an assistant who does all this stuff for me, let alone like a fleet of assistants, because sometimes I was part of like a group of a couple fabricators. But um but sometimes I have to go into this headspace where I'm like, today I'm Caroline Polchek's assistant and I'm doing yeah. all this stuff yeah. for her. Right. And I suddenly completely switch into this really kind of like checklist headspace that's great. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, wow, you did a really good job working for Caroline Polachek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very, I think that's a similar, a similar mindset. Yeah, going into yeah. like admin task mode, if you're thinking like, I'm working for myself, that's, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, fully, fully. Yeah, it's, you know, it's also, you have a little uh, sympathy for yourself when you're doing that. Totally. I don't get the $10 an hour I used to, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, sympathy is a good way to look at it. Yeah. Also, we'll, maybe it'll make you a, a better boss when you do have a real assistant one day. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, that, that's the idea is like, am I, am I my own boss or am I, is someone else my boss? And if, yeah, if you look at it psychologically that way of like, I'm working for someone else, like you kind of approach it differently. It's maybe, maybe healthy to kind of switch modes. Like if you're just, if you're boss man or boss lady all the time, it's like, you can kind of get lost in that. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. It's like, um, somehow less, uh, less of an ego thing. Yeah, we, I mean, we talk about, like, removal of ego with, like, art practices a lot here, and it's it's sort of an ironic thing in 2021 when, the, you know, the ego is so attached 
or, or maybe the lack of ego, but like ego plays a giant role in being some sort of artist and in, in some medium and dealing with that and navigating like how big that is or how much you bow to that is a huge challenge. I mean, it can also be very freeing and empowering though. Yeah, actually, that's something that I've been struggling with a lot this month, because after a year of not being on camera, I suddenly had a, like a streak of shoots in the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And I had a complete panic attack leading up to the first one, like a multi-day meltdown with the thought of like representing myself as a visual object, which is funny because it's something I got so used to. Um, but yeah, it's so easy for, you know, to get these kind of like ego flare ups like I, my image must represent everything I stand for and sell the work to the greatest of its ability. And, um, yeah. and that can ultimately hold you back to such a crazy degree. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's um, why we chose anonymity. <laughs> yeah. Well but, played. you know, I'm thinking about what you said earlier, Caroline, about, um, well, we were talking about, uh, stripping the identity away from something, but, but mm -hmm. you mentioned something about how, you know, music is a personal thing to the degree of it actually is kind of an essential part of, of the music. I mean, obviously not all music, but, uh, definitely in a more kind of songwriter based thing. Um, yeah, that, I, you know, that is true. The identity is kind of crucial to what it is. Massively. I mean, you could, I mean, this is me just being kind of like pretentious, but I think music is the most truly expressive because just because of how internal it is, the experience of writing it out and also maybe even more importantly, the experience of listening to it. Um, yeah. And that's, I think, what's so compelling about an anonymous musician is you're interfacing with someone so emotionally on such a kind of deep level without knowing who they are. And that's kind of sexy and exciting. Absolutely. It is, but I... I I wonder if, you know, if too many people were doing it, if it actually wouldn't uh, wouldn't have the same effect. Well, I think pretty soon we'll start seeing, you know, AI artists like yeah. surreptitiously existing without us knowing. You know, there will be electronic producers that actually aren't human and, you know, have organic fan bases who are interested in the, in the deep lore. And that's going to be a really interesting thing. Because once the kind of like what makes a melody soulful or what makes a, a a production or a mix soulful, like once that gets kind of narrowed down and, and played with um, by non-human entities, you know, how I, I think I think an anonymous AI producer is way more compelling than a like Hatsune Miku kind of character. Right. When you say anonymous AI, do you, do you mean literally someone who like we, we don't know if it's AI or not or, or someone who is constructing like some sort of generative thing who doesn't choose to attach their identity to it like are we talking about real robots here or <laughs> i'm talking yeah i'm talking about like a, a generative like gan style musician or like right. even like a style transfer version of audio like that's kind of copying and imitating um songwriting and and production right um I, I, and it, I, maybe without there being like one auteur behind the scenes maybe it's like a group of a collective of people that are you know, playing this GAN or what, I, I don't have the right terminology, but it's going to be, I guess what I mean is it's going to be interesting when the output of that kind of generative technology enters the landscape without people knowing that it's not human. 
yeah. and develops its own fan base seemingly very organically. Yeah, this is something we talked about with this guy, this artist from like the 90s, Josh Harris. And he's, you know, he's very much of the belief of like, you know, the algorithm or, or AI kind of taking over the, the arts, maybe specifically. But I, there, I have this weird sort of resistance to it. I don't know if it's just because I'm like, no, I want, I want the humans to win. But I definitely it, do too. It reminds me of like, you know, 10 years ago when everyone was talking about VR and like <laughs> VR didn't really take off it's just like oh this is the future in three years like everybody's gonna be wearing these things and you know we're 15 years later and there's no one wearing yeah. them i'm like where is the ar is the ai art really coming like i mean i guess yeah. it, it, it's inevitable but I, I just i don't know i'm suspicious well i don't know also when people the the idea that electronic music is like you know not human or unfeeling or something i've never understood at all and uh no it, like it, it just has nothing to do with my experience of electronic music, so I never understood that idea at all. Uh, electronic music feels equally, if not in a lot of times, more human than any other music, and um, I I don't think that that could really be captured by AI. I mean, who knows? But I, I don't think so. Well, the robots said it best: Daft uh, Punk were, were human after all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. like the tension. Yeah, I agree with you that it's a kind of like bullshit, you know, division that gets put in place of like electronic music is less human. I guess that would be like looking at contemporary architecture and being like, that's not for people to live in. People don't right. interface physically with that object because it has really clean edges. Like, that's ridiculous. Right. Um, and in a lot of cases, I think electronic music is maybe, you know, ultra humanizing because it's kind of like it represents our relationship with technology and environment in like a yeah. very beautiful way like what there's there's like walking around a city you know again around that kind of contemporary architecture listening to like very pure electronic music is like maybe the most contemporary human experience there is but i think you know to your point about and kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier um regarding like new musicians entering the scene being like helmed by a sense of identity. I think that's, especially as a teenager, that's what I looked for in music more than anything was actually instructions on how to live, how mm -hmm. to exist. Like listening to Radiohead as a 15 year old, I couldn't really care less how they were making the music. It was it was kind of the ontology and like the, yeah. the spirit of the music that was like instructing me like, this is how you can exist and spiritually survive in the world. Like the music was an example of that. And I think anything that's not made by a human being lacks that set of instructions and is therefore less culturally interesting, but maybe very aesthetically interesting. Right. Um, and maybe we'll be pulling from that and collaging from it and, and collaborating with it. And maybe that collaboration in itself is going to be like that feeling of walking around a city listening to electronic music. It, it's going to be more representative of the contemporary state of humanity. But... But yeah, I think it's that it's that ontology thing. Like we are looking to artists to tell us how to, to spiritually survive. I I, yeah. I think that that is totally true, and I think that is the the maybe the ultimate uh, you know holy role of the artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's. I mean, the context of the humanity of the artist is is always. I think it's still something that people always look to, like something I on one always kind of roasts me for is I, I, I'm always curious, like what is burial eating? 
Like, why well, I need to know what he eats on a on a on a given day? And like, I just like that is a ridiculous concept. But like, because we've been given so little context or information, it's just like it's something that I wonder about when I listen to the music. I'm like, what is what's he snacking on here? That's like a really good eye on listener poll right there. <laughs> No, but it, it is, yeah, instruction on how to live. That That's a great way of putting it. I think, you know, I also think, you know, artists can easily get into this kind of, uh, uh, you know, almost guilty view of what they're doing is maybe uh, not as important as what other people are, are doing that are more kind of, quote unquote, vital roles in a society. But I would say that, uh, a society could also not function without art. So it's a very vital role in, in coming from that lens. Massively. What also can't function without icons. Like I think pe people like to look <laughs> up or I mean, people like to look to icons and like, you know, what is this person doing or how do they, how do they live? Like that makeup tutorial is actually more essential than it seems. I think like people, I mean, as, as silly as it could be, like just seeing someone exist and, and being a human and being alive is, is really essential for other people to kind of draw from. Whoa, that's so interesting. I would never would have looked at a makeup tutorial like that, but you're right. It's a kind of like, uh, like theatrical application of emotional armor. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, really personal music that was kind of about uh, the person writing it and then very personal uh, is how as a young person I came into my own and how I you know discovered things about myself and kind of formed my own or found my own self-identity I guess I would say so like how they dress yeah. and how they present themselves yeah just the way they express things and and um it it made me feel more connected to humanity to to relate to it or like you've got a shot at this thing yeah 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 the ultimate inspiration yeah just like using spin magazine as a bible like 20 years ago <laughs> it's like those are the genes <laughs> it's funny how meta it all is, like the more you start thinking about it, because so many musicians are like deeply self-hating and also live very badly and take bad care of themselves. And again, I guess we should be talking about artists in general, not just musicians. Um, but to think that you're kind of taking your spiritual instructions for people that can't necessarily take care of themselves yeah. is funny because at the end of the day, like self-care is of like no importance at all with the quality of art. It's really just the ability to show up and... And the music is like that expression, right? Even the fact that it gets recorded and released in the first place is like evidence of the the showing up. And right. that's kind of, that's the, uh, that's the end product. That's, yeah, we're all kind of learning how to show up. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, even if uh, a, mu a musician or any artist that you're looking up to is uh, not living uh, healthily at all, uh, there's still... Um, something on a higher plane that can be gleamed from from what they say it doesn't you know not saying that you have to learn how to live uh in a day-to-day -day way from them it's more of spiritual yeah. thing it's also just like an you know evidence of bravery right it's like bravery survival and vitality all at the same time yeah yeah, yeah. 
And it's a big responsibility too, because like I think that you know, in a time when people don't trust politicians or or leaders or or whatever quite as much, that like there is maybe more of a responsibility on like you know, people do draw a lot of inspiration or guidance from yeah. artists or people that they look up to in, in those realms. And you know, I don't think. You know, it's not like, oh, every artist needs to be, like, the best person in the world. But, like, I think that responsibility is there whether you choose to engage with it or not. Yeah, like, people true. are going to look up to you and, and kind of emulate you. It's funny that that's kind of, kind of applied to, like, the tech and Silicon Valley world now. People looking at these, like, Elon Musk figures as the icons in, like, that same kind of, like... Yeah. It, yeah, yeah that's, right. That's like, trouble for me. But Yeah, yeah like... Uh, you know, CEOs becoming some type of rock star is, is a very strange turn. Yeah. Or that they have that same kind of like guru energy, mm -hmm. you know, they're tapped into something, man. Like, yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with this. But no, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, yeah. Did you have particular like gurus and, and people that you looked up to growing up? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, Growing up, well, I guess all the musicians I admired were first and foremost. Um, I guess when you're when you're like a kid and a teenager, you usually have someone that's like three years older than you that you look up to. That's really yeah. cool. Oh, yeah. There was a girl in my and I was like very very into choir. Um, shocker when I was a teenager and there was a girl who was a couple years older than me who's actually now kind of a musician who's very much on the scene in Berlin and like the experimental scene but um, she was a couple years older than me in, in high school and she would just like oh, she was just so cool um, like unfazed like eyes always kind of like half open always wearing like Anna Sui and like showing up in these like like Tibetan looking slippers um, with like chipped metallic nails I was just like oh my god she's so cool <laughs> so, like, your role, you know your role models start they start local um, and yeah. then and then um, yeah that's interesting in terms of like the way people look at would look at someone like in the tech world as a kind of leader Hmm. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. But I also think maybe a part of that is, um, you know, someone like Elon Musk or, or even Steve Jobs in his own way that people admire in that way are seen as not anti-establishment as much as they forged things their own way in, in a way that people told them they weren't supposed to kind of thing. Um, yeah, it was the beginning of like disruptor culture with a capital yeah, D. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I think, uh, I think that element is very appealing to a lot of people. And I feel like a lot of artists don't have that feeling. And probably because if an artist doesn't do things the way they're supposed to, no one hears about them. So like they, people don't know they exist. This is yeah. all to say that we need to see more lifestyle content from you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, triggered. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, I think it's, um, I do think it's important that there's, uh, that some artists step up and, and do things in a non uh, by the books PR way. Not to say that you have to, you know, do something shocking and crazy or whatever, but just, uh, you know, have, if people felt the humanity of, of artists a little more, they might look up to them in a, in a different way. I think that's the appeal of someone 
ultimately like Elon Musk to a lot of people is they see that he's, um, you know, own, not, not, dude. yeah, he's not, uh, PRing himself. He's, he's doing it the way he wants to do it. I think that that's a large part of the appeal for people. Yeah. yeah. And they're just not getting it from artists. You know, I think another thing that comes with all this is a sense of what's at stake. Like, you know, the Steve Jobs mythology is so exciting precisely because there was so much at stake, even at these early stages of his career, like when he'd convinced people to fund these like startup ideas, mm-hmm. like there was so much riding on it. And I think for musicians, especially people who are operating in the underground way, there's nothing at stake in terms of making those kind of disruptor style risks because it's so expected. And right. also the amount of money that you're going to make off it is so like marginal anyway, yeah. that it it's it, any kind of sense of, you know, for example, like we were talking about earlier, saying no to the pressures of uh, like algorithmic streaming world or no to the pressures of different kind of content creation or whatever. Those gestures aren't radical. They're not disruptive. Yeah. They're actually ex- expected. Um, and and the, it, therefore, like the only kind of radical thing you can do is like, you know, do do the kind of mainstream collab. Um, right. And yet for bigger artists... Or, or big anyone, you know, with more at stake, and that, that that doesn't just mean more money on the table, but just kind of, yeah, even the risk of public humiliation, or like, um, I guess I'm struggling to think of any other example. Being canceled. Besides, yeah, sure, cancellation, but also, you know, venture capitalism. You have like, you know, your whole board breathing down your neck. Like that's that's where the idea of disrupt disruptorship, I guess, comes from. Is right when you mm-hmm. have like a lot at stake. And yeah. and then you make those kind of decisions, and totally. and that weirdly can only be done by really big artists who already have a platform and yeah exactly and are established. So this sets us up. This actually is like a kind of like bad. It's a quite bad place for any kind of new avant garde or like to, it, I, to yeah. spring up in. Yeah, and maybe that's, that's something we kind of have to address. Is like what? How do we up? what's at stake and like the risk within these communities essentially is that like a form of like really harsh critical discourse is that things like drunken canal like like you know providing like uh, a stage as a form of pressure um i i think it's reclaiming um diy i mean that's you know it all goes back to this like Bandcamp, soundcloud organic growth thing versus uh, playing the the personal social media PR game to to get somewhere. I think, uh, you know, do things yourself. And as a as a listener or watcher or you know, a, someone who likes any kind of art, uh, engage with things on that level. Um, but how does that up up the sense of stakes and risk? Because yeah. those world that's actually depressurized. Those spaces are depressurized. I I don't I don't think so because I think. Um, I think there's a there's like an existential risk. It's like you won't have a career mm-hmm. if you don't do uh, if you don't do it the way you're supposed to, or you know the, you won't have longevity. And you're, well, yeah, you, you but we know the way right. that it goes when like Amazon, like the the worth of Amazon goes up in COVID. Like people don't don't go to mom and pop's places. It's like everybody's mm. on Spotify. Everybody has a Netflix account. Like I, I guess the way to raise the stakes is to kind of like 
you know, bankrupt these these places, which is I don't necessarily think going to happen. Like no one's going to stick it. To, it's just easier. Yeah. It's like all the stuff's on here, and it's like to go and be like, you know, I'm I'm just going to release my music over here on Bandcamp, and I'm you know, if Spotify gives me a deal, I'm not going to do it. It's yeah, sort of right. Like, it's like shaking your fist at the sky. Yeah, everyone just stays in the same place, and the other thing kind of just grows without you. Know, it's weird. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I mean, the stakes like, are simply just living in cities, right? Like you have to pay rent in New York City, but like, oh, but then you get the side job. Oh God, it's such a puzzle. It, it really is. It really is. Um, I think it's criticism. Honestly, I think it's criticism. I think it comes down to listeners becoming snobs and right. and really taking their own hot takes very seriously and discussing music on like a very high level and like cultivating critical conversations with each other and taking pride in your own takes and i don't mean in like a snarky like twittery way i mean like you know like email chains of people writing to each other about like this is what i'm into right now this is my take on this you know and right. that as a form of upping the stakes like that kind of approval being something that becomes important well i think that yeah that's why it's maybe um encouraging that there's like maybe an emergence of like alt media or like people yes. with critical takes on things that isn't just you know people who are like you know doing handshakes with you know the people who are you know it's like sort of like oh yeah we'll write the article it's this this uh, we'll say that the record's good it's sort of like these alternative things gaining more power kind of gives more power to people who might not be in cahoots with everyone yeah 100 percent. yeah and um and I don't know. I think it's important for artists to not treat what they uh, are doing as a, as a product um, and not uh, maybe not manufacturing it as much. I mean, I always think about the CEO of Spotify saying the old model of releasing albums just uh, we don't we can't do that anymore. You just have to release music all the time now uh, that. <laughs> that was like i was really freaked out by that honestly um i, I yeah i don't know there's i don't have an answer here but there, i there has to be some kind of we have to find some way for to to you know we're not going to overthrow these companies but to to somehow not let them as strongly dictate what we make yeah I mean, I, I really believe that there's a demand for an alternative. Um, and you kind of see it online, too, with people kind of jumping off Twitter and Instagram and going into places like Discord. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and I actually don't think the existence of Spotify is actually so much a direct threat to these new alternatives springing up as much as, like, like we were saying, like a lack of there being something at stake and a lack of context and a lack of scenes um, and funding. And I think we, we should think about those things before we think about dismantling structures like Spotify that are just like, we, we kind of have to have a kind of like, in some ways kind of a Gen X mentality about it instead of like, like fuck the man. It's like, no, we're creating an alternative. We're going over here and you can't yeah. be part of it. Right. You know, yeah, the yeah. Gen X, the Gen X sentiment has, has started to feel more essential to, to now than, than ever before. Mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. when i feel like the the generation beneath us or like the the younger kids now are are maybe i mean they, they might be plotting something that we don't know about and that's i always kind of come <laughs> back to that because i'm just like you know they i i'm not them so i i don't know 
but I think that, you know, we were sort of an in-between where it's sort of like flirting with me, flirting with the mainstream, flirting with like corporations or whatever. And I think maybe the generation beneath us, like kind of maybe almost isn't totally even aware of the difference as much anymore. And they're sort of like more, yeah, they're just more willing to kind of take whatever they can get. But I, th I do feel like there is something admirable about saying no to an, yeah, an interview or saying no to doing this. And, and I, I, I sense less and less people caring about doing that. Everyone's just trying to like, you know, make rent at the end of the day. <laughs> totally. I mean, one, one thing that's been kind of interesting to see in London amongst my younger friends who are like in their early 20s, I'm not going to like out anyone here, but this is, you know, friends across fashion, photography, music, um, across these different kind of spheres is, and even fine art, there's like a renewed interest in, um, in research and in actually kind of memorizing facts related to stuff you're interested in. Right. And it's almost like reading and memorizing and learning and research is a kind of artisanal and like cool form of like, I don't know, proof of your belief in art. And that if right. you're not doing that, you're not really interested. You're not really one of the cool kids. Um, and that's, that's really cool. Cause I, you know, I, th I think, there's this idea that like, oh, well, the kids have access to all this information. Like they would be more detached from information than anyone ever has been before because Wikipedia is like right there. Right, but actually right. the opposite is happening where this, you know, really kind of like poetic research into like history and events and techniques and outsider art um, is like a flex yeah. And yes, it's pretentious, but it's it's cool that it's happening. No, it's amazing. Whenever I whenever I meet like a nineteen year old kid now, I'm like, man, you know about this? Like, how, like yeah. you're so so much more advanced than I was. Like, I only knew about these three bands at that age. Yeah, right. Well, th I mean, that's th <laughs> th that's the ultimate, um, you know, great effect that the internet can have is that there's so much more accessibility to things now. That's that's what I'm saying. We have to keep that. Uh, we have to keep that effect kind of forefronted. Yeah. It also rewards itself as well. Um, so like we're not even, we're not even important in this process. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're out of it. We're off the grid. But I mean, you know, we're I mean, off I, the grid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I, I've said this before, but you know, imagine if you told a musician or any artist in the nineties, like, what if you didn't have to appease the record companies and the label uh, and you didn't need uh, a huge budget to make your album and you didn't need a huge budget to make a music video? Uh, you could do all of it yourself and you could have the world hear it by pressing a button sitting in your bedroom. They would say that sounds like the dream and we'll finally you know, be taking things into our own hands, which is what we want. And then we got there, but somehow that's not happening but and we're now also, more slaves than ever you also failed to tell this like you know control group gen xer that their music would also like be stripped of a lot of its social context and they wouldn't be paid so yeah, there's a bit of right. a catch <laughs> very true that's um, true they would definitely still take it they would take that handshake 
Right. Yeah, it's like the filmmaker thing of like, you know, every every director is like when when it's like, oh, what's your advice for young filmmakers? It's like, just go do it. Um, and like that, I do think that that's good advice on some level, but it's also like you can just go do it and then have it die on your Vimeo link. Like it's that's it just goes. It's like a graveyard of like yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody going and doing it. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, like fun really speaks for itself. Yeah, yeah. and um, I mean, community really, like you were saying, boost yeah your friends and other people around, and you know take it into your own hands, not just for what you're making. I don't mean that at all. I mean, you know, when you find things you like, tell people about it, uh, put on for them. You know, if you find an opportunity for someone who you fuck with, uh, hook them up with it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, we have to have each other's backs kind of thing. Yeah. And big shouts to all the discord communities like ours and whoever else is like, it does feel like this cool like democratized platform for people to just be sharing things and having fun again. And that's the, the, the fun theme is something that we've been coming back to a lot because it's sort of yeah. salvational, so, salvational, salvational in of itself um, to just be sharing things with like-minded people. And that's sort of like what the fun of the internet was in the beginning anyway. Yeah, totally. I'll have to as- get on Ion discord. Yeah, yeah, the Ion Discord is is great. Yeah, um, I'll send you an it's, it's the, a good one. It's the best one I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> but it's as I there. yeah, as I said in the prediction section of the last issue of Drunken Canal, uh, Discord is the future of social media, and I actually think it's a way healthier version of social media. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. Well, we'll see you in there, Carolyn. Yeah, we'll send you an invite. It's off Can't the grid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much. This was really fun. It was. Yeah, I um, I feel like we yeah we kind of uh, we kind of came to some some good conclusions. I'm, I'm feeling good. Yeah, I felt like there was some redund- redundancy in what I was saying, but I also trust you guys to trim the fat. <laughs> oh, I didn't. I didn't think it was redundant at all. I, I yeah. I well, that's the great thing about podcasts is you you hear people contradict themselves and work through things as they go um i actually think that's I mean, a healthy thing dear what i'm impressed by is that caroline you said that you were in a non-verbal state and then you yeah, were very true. much yeah. <laughs> very articulate and going off the whole time which i was just like she's not in a non-verbal state what are you talking about <laughs> i mean you know you guys are great hosts i feel very at ease around you so thank you oh great thank you thank you um, caroline. caroline before you go do you have any closing statements or things to plug things to plug um i'd like to plug fun yes huge Um, shouts to fun huge shouts to fun i think that's my plug that's my plug today there we go Um, yeah that's beautiful yeah big Um, shouts to fun big shouts to caroline polchuk thanks so much for having me on Thanks so much for coming on. We'll see you in the Discord. Yes, and I'll send you this audio. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. Peace. Thanks again. Bye. Once again, this has been the Ion Pack and Caroline Polachek. To hear more, go to www.patreon.com slash the Ion Pack. You already know. Patreon.